Hello, everyone. I'm Ed Mullins, and welcome back to The Point. With me today is retired detective Bob Miladovich and retired detective Dr. Uh, Tom Coughlin, um, both of whom are working in psychology. Dr. Coughlin has many years of experience working in psychology, mainly with the police department. Um, he's done a lot over his 21 years of service in the NYPD, um, doing fitness uh, for duty evaluations, candidate pre-employment, psychological eval evaluations, military deployment briefings, disciplinary stress triage, which would be interesting to talk about, Doc, and trauma response. Um, before I dig in deeper, Doc, what am I missing? I know you did 21 years in the NYPD, retired second grade detective. Can you tell us where you work? Sure. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, I retired in, in 2018. Uh, and uh, since then, it's kind of been a whirlwind. Um, I'm, I'm on the EAP network with the Drug Enforcement Administration. So I do EAP work with the, uh, the DEA. You know, they send me in referrals for uh, whether it's critical incident stress or people just having day-to-day -day problems in their marriages, whatever it might be. Uh, I'm a clinical, uh, I'm on the network, clinician on the network with the POPPER program. So I get referrals out of the POPPER program. Um, I'm teaching on the side as well, and I have a private practice uh, out in Great Neck. Uh, where I exclusively treat uh, police officers and their families in, in individual uh, psychotherapy or in family systems therapy. When you first came into the department, what commands were you assigned to? You know, when, I, when I first came out of the academy, I was in the 108. And uh, I was in the 108 for, uh, I think, about two and a half, three years. And then I transferred over to the 2 um, I was in the 2 riding the, sec the steady sector on uh, midnights in the 2 uh, the two slows, I guess sometimes we used to refer to it as, um, and then from the 2-0, uh, I went downtown to 1PP, and uh, that's after I had the pleasure of running into Bob, while I spent some time down in, uh, in personnel 1PP, um, and then uh, went off to get my degree and went on to the medical division from there. I, I wanted to just get that out, because as you know, many cops will be watching, and many uh, cops are always afraid to deal with the department on a psychological level. Um, you know, Bob is retired. He just pursued a career in social work. And Bob, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing, just so people know. And, you know, one of the reasons I want to get into this is, as you both know, suicide is a big problem amongst law enforcement. We just recently had two in the past two weeks. Um, I really want to dig into that as we go forward. But what I'm hoping is that as, you know, cops watch this, they develop a trust for what you guys do and what we do. Um, what would I like to do? I want to talk to both of you about that. But um, Bob, why don't you fill us in a little bit about you so they know? Yeah, shortly before, in the year before 9-11, I had gone back to school uh, to, to Adelphi to get a degree in social work, a master's in social work with the ultimate goal of being a clinical social worker. 9-11 uh, kind of derailed those plans, so I, I dropped out. And um, I subsequently went back uh, back in 2013, I went back in my 50s. I was older than all the teachers and all the other students in the class, but I absolutely loved it. And um, I got the ultimate, ultimately got the degree. And then I had to get three three years of postgraduate supervision in order to get the clinical social uh, work license. And I've been in practice now for a little over a year, full practice. All right. So for those watching and, you know, I, I actually I know both of you, um, you know, you're here because I trust you and 
you know, I'm hoping that cops will trust you going forward and look at <laughs> the resource going forward. Um, one of the things I like to talk about, because this comes up a lot, and we all hear it from people we know, it's the psychological program in the NYPD. And, and I've heard all kinds of horror stories regarding the psych exam. Um, Doc, I understand that, you know, people get red flagged on, on a psychological exam. Um, do you see any common denominators as to why they're getting red flagged? Is there a pattern amongst the candidates as this happens? Yeah. Um, so I'll just preface with a quick disclaimer. Um, as a licensed psychologist, I'm, I'm held to the, uh, the APA ethical code of conduct for psychologists. And so I can't speak to any test security, anything that, that would um, uh, compromise test security for any of the tests that are administered, I can maintain test integrity, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'll sort of talk around test security issues. Fully um, understood. Yeah. So if, if there's really, if there's one primary thing that I see knocks candidates out time and time again, it's integrity issues. Absolutely boiled down, number one uh, disqualifies integrity issues. And by integrity issues, I mean candidates lying during the interview. Um, I have, I've done thousands, thousands of candidate pre-employment psychological evaluations, not just for the NYPD, for the MTA police, for, for Bayonne PD and a number of departments in, in New Jersey, uh, for United Nations police, uh, for, for a variety of, of agencies, I've done thousands of pre-employment evaluations. And I have passed, when I say passed, I mean found suitable, psychologically suitable, many candidates, if not hundreds, who have negative indicators in their history, past arrests, drug use, job terminations, mental health history, hundreds I found suitable and passed, and they've gone on to become cops. I've never, ever proved that they lied to me during the interview about the most minute thing. If I can catch you in a lie, you're unsuitable. Because I cannot deliver to the field a cop whose integrity can't be trusted. I cannot deliver to the field a cop who might sit in the witness stand one day and, and testify to something that's just not true. I just won't do it. So if there is one of the most common pitfalls that candidates encounter, it's lying. And often it's lying for something that had they just told the truth, they would have been passed, right? And so you can get passed or found suitable for many things in your history. Lying is the one kiss of death. You just will not get found suitable for it. And and, and even on re-interview, if you would appeal it and come back in, it's very difficult to get. If you have to walk in now to the re-interview and say, yeah, the first time I was here, I lied, but I'd like to come clean now. It's just very difficult to survive that. It makes sense, but as you're explaining that, I'm kind of curious that, you know, unless I heard you wrong, other issues, like an arrest, for example, they can get passed, but they can't. How about, you know, substance abuse somewhere along the line? Yeah, you'll have candidates that, that will have a history of, of substance abuse. Um, what, what candidates often misunderstand, it's not, there, is, there are very few, very few, automatic disqualifiers, right? Obviously a felony conviction, right? Sure. If you have a felony conviction, it's an automatic disqualifier. Right. Uh, beyond that, there aren't many automatic disqualifiers. Certainly if you've had, you know, something egregious, a, a recent suicide attempt that's that, that's on record or something like that, or a recent psychiatric inpatient stay in a, an inpatient hospital, something like that. But even then, 
we would request the records, we'd get the records from the hospital, we'd review the records, we'd look to see, you know, what was the treatment for, was the person responsive to treatment, did they get discharged on their medication, are they compliant with that medication, et cetera. Even then, we're still going to do an individual assessment on a case-by-case basis, get the records and review the records, right? So there are very few automatic disqualifiers. Even substance abuse, right? A candidate can come in and truthfully say, uh, yeah, you know, back in high school or back in college, I used marijuana. The first, the age of my first use was this age. The age of my most recent use was this age. And the total amount of times I've used in my life is this many. And we're going to look at that on a case-by-case basis and evaluate that on a case-by-case basis. Especially today, in the current climate of certain substances being deemed more and more legal or decriminalized across the country. Um, we, we have to recognize that there's a social shift going on and we have to, to some degree, take that into account. Right? So, so let me, you just triggered a thought. Mm-hmm. A candidate um, fails the dole test, fails the hair sample test, right? They, they scrape your hair and it comes back that you've used substance. If they don't deny that on a questionnaire that they used it, would they still be good? So here's the thing. I can, I can, and every clinician that does pre-employment psychological evaluations is going to set a different individual discretionary threshold for what we will deem suitable or unsuitable in a candidate, right? Meaning that there's no hard score. You don't really pass the psych per se, right? Because in order to pass it, that would suggest that there's like a score that you have to hit. And if you get better than that score, you pass. It doesn't work like that, right? Okay. In fact, there's a lot of variance in inter-rater reliability among clinicians doing pre-employment psychological evaluations, meaning I could have the same candidate sit with five different clinicians who do pre-employment psychological evaluations. And I don't know that I'm going to get 100% across the board consistency about how each uh, a clinician rates that a candidate is being suitable or unsuitable, right? So it's right. not a hard score. It's not an exact science, right? There's a little bit of art and there's some individual variance and discretionary threshold that different clinicians set. Um, with with that said, for me, when I'm doing pre-employment, once you've sat for the exam to become a cop, right, whatever your date is that you sat for the exam, I expect all behaviors to have ceased and desist starting that day, all behaviors, right? So if you took the exam in 2018 and you're telling me that in 2019 you're still smoking weed, no good, no good. You should have stopped all those behaviors and modified all of those problematic behaviors the day you sat for the exam. So if I'm still seeing speeding violations after you took the exam, if I'm still seeing drug use after you took the exam, to me, that's just no good. You should have made a conscious choice to modify your behavior at that point. Okay, makes sense. Uh, you know, we all, no, none of us want to work with people who are doing drugs. And, and I understand totally the integrity issue that you know, once a liar, always a liar type thing, um, especially on something that's so important. I always remember people talking about taking the test and, you know, things will come up. You know, I broke my finger when I was a kid. Let them know because it's not a big deal. And you kind of clarify that. Has there ever been an, uh, an incident where something within that category happened where you were able to, you know, change it around with someone sued or someone had explanation, it was sympathetic, uh, that it made sense. That wasn't my answer, it was misunderstood or something along those lines. I mean, for the most yeah, part, it sounds like- one of, the, 
one of the services that I provide in my practices is I, I, I conduct independent evaluations for appeals when a candidate receives what's called a notice to propose disqualification. So if the job is looking to disqualify somebody for psych, that candidate will receive a notice to propose disqualification. It's basically the job telling the candidate, we're going to disqualify you for psych, but you have a couple of choices. We're going to let you withdraw from the process now. No harm, no foul. You walk away, we walk away. It goes down as a withdrawal and not a disqualification. We're going to give you that option, right? And you can come through in the future on a, on a future exam or something. Or you can send in a letter explaining why we should still hire you, right? The chances of passing on just your own written statement are probably pretty slim. Or you can go to a mental health professional to perform an independent evaluation. And that's when they come to me. I get their records, I read their records, and I give them some feedback in regard to the likelihood that they're either going to get a re-interview or survive that re-interview. Those are two very different things, right? Yeah. Getting a re-interview is probably about this difficult. Surviving that re-interview is probably about this difficult, right? So candidates sometimes misunderstand that. They think, oh, I got the re-interview. That means I'm going to get in. No. That means you're just going back in and giving the OID another shot at disqualifying you, right? So it's 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 really things that candidates misunderstand. And I think the biggest service I provide to candidates is just giving them a frame about how this works and perspective on how this process works and what your chances are, what the likelihood is of successfully appealing these uh, uh, disqualifications. Uh, but yes, I do have candidates come in. I review their records, and if I think that number one. If I agree with the disqualification, if I if I get the record and I read the record and I agree with the NYPD's findings, I turn down the case, right? I just, I just don't take it. And then right. no harm, no foul. I haven't collected any money from the candidate. We part ways and that's it, right? Or if I don't believe that the candidate stands a chance at passing a re-interview, I'll pass on the case as well, right? I have no interest in wasting people's time, wasting my time, wasting people's money. I just pass on it. I pass on about 70% of the cases of the records that I actually review, I pass on about 70% of cases, um, which means that I have this artificially high success rate, right? Because some candidates will come in and say, what's your success rate? And I'll say, well, first of all, my success rate at what? My success rate at getting you a re-interview or you passing the re-interview? Because those are two very different things. Sure. And it's an artificial success rate because I only take cases that I believe I stand a strong chance of them winning on the interview. So my success rate is artificial because I, I only select in cases that I think people, that I can help people successfully win, that I can help them moving through this. Process. So outside of lying, um, someone fails the drug test, mm -hmm. they have a chance of appealing to come back. Yes. So they, really? they could. So if when you say the drug test, do you mean the doll or do you mean well, someone is an applicant? I'm an applicant. I, I they take a hair sample from me and I, I fail, you know, and it shows, you know, what, three months, four months back, whatever it is. So I fail. Right. Do I have a chance to appeal that? So, so that's a, it's a, it's um there are different disqualifications, right? You can get disqualified at the medical. Um, and then that I wouldn't be involved in. Right? Okay. So, right. so that I can't really speak to, um, because I don't do medical disqualifications. Right. I only do the psychological disqualifications, but if a candidate fails on site, because they disclosed the history of marijuana use to the psychologist, and then the psychologist failed them because of that reported use, that potentially is a case that I might take on, depending upon if the candidate comes in 
and they're telling me that they're still using marijuana two weeks before I interview them, then no. Yeah, I mean, you know you should have stopped that behavior and you haven't, you know. The reason I'm asking that is because we, we've, many states, they're making marijuana legal. Yeah. And it's becoming a problem that, you know, there's the old fitness for duty. You, know, you got to be fit for duty. And it was always alcohol, right? Drugs, you were fired automatically. And you're still up. Condition of employment. But if I, you know, I, I'm at a party and I'm drinking all day long and I got to do a 4 to 12 tonight, I'm not fit for duty. If I'm sitting here smoking marijuana, um, you know, I'm doing tomorrow night for a 4 to 12, I'm still fit for duty. And yet, I could be terminated. So I'm looking at where could this go as we move into the future? Because you're not breaking any laws according to the way things are right now. Um, and I'm still fit for duty. So, you know, what do you foresee happening with that? Yeah, I, I think it's all going to be, um, it's all going to be uh, dictated by whether or not the federal government ever decides to decriminalize marijuana. As long as at the federal level, it's not legal to to, to use or own or distribute. Um, I think that that's the standard by which uh, it's 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 going to be applied for point for for, for, for pre-employment. Um, if New York State were to wholly legalize it uh, for recreational purposes, um, then I think that there's going to have to be ultimately the NYPD is going to have to revisit. Uh, whether or not they use that as a rule out. Now, in the same way that I think then it will be treated the same way as alcohol, meaning that sure, alcohol is legal, but you can't show up to work on it, right? right. Alcohol is legal, but you can't be driving around a sector car with a, with a can of beer next to you, right? I think in the same way, it's, it's going to be equalized to alcohol. It's going to be treated in the same way if New York State would have recreationally legalize it across the board. I, I, you just hit something I never really thought about. If it remains a federal crime, mm -hmm. you know, maybe even if the state say it's totally legal because it's right. still a federal crime, right? right. Um, and therein lies the problem. Right. So it's probably at the level of the ultimate part of it being a federal crime. Bob, you jumped in to pursue social work, um, and I know you want to work with cops. Why? What, what triggered you? I mean, you're right. You've produced movies. You've done all kinds of extraordinary things um and in the midst i was surprised when you explained it to me what you were doing but um, because you were going down a different path what made you want to get back into this i've always been um i've always been very interested in the human condition what makes people tick uh can you guys hear me yes okay and um that's something i remember years ago when i took an aptitude test in like sixth or seventh grade um, they told me that I would make a good social worker slash therapist someday. I had no idea what that meant. I never really had any interest in that as a young man. And ultimately, you know, in my late 40s and then in my early 50s, it popped back up, which makes me think, you know, some of those early tests that we take, uh, they really do have some credibility. Because how they knew that about me in, in sixth or seventh grade, I have no idea. My behavior back then certainly didn't suggest that I was, you know, extremely sensitive or particularly understanding of other people. You have any, you have any explanation for that, uh, Dr. Coglin? <laughs> Not in the, about me in particular, but how do we know at, at that young age, you know, what people would be good at someday? 
I think there are certain traits that are um, inherent, uh, certain traits that are innate, and that we're born with certain predispositions towards certain traits. And I think those traits begin to manifest very early on. Um, and I think that we can clear out some of the static around those traits and, and be able with certain assessment tools to hone in on them and identify them. And when we see that they're there, for example, empathy, right? Not everybody is born uh, with a great degree of empathy and empathy is something to be developed over time. I think that when we see empathy, um, even early on, it suggests that a, you know, this is a very empathetic person and empathy is uh, a robust predictor of success in what um, vocations, right? And so something like that. Could you ever have seen this for yourself, you know, 30 years ago? You know, maybe not exactly this, um, but psychology was what I wanted to do um, from my undergrad work. Uh, my undergrad experience was not a good one. Um, I didn't really gel well into the program I was in. I later realized looking back, I was in, theoretically, I was in the wrong theoretical program. I just didn't realize that at the time. And so I got out of my undergrad in, 80, uh, in 93, um, and then I was just kind of disillusioned to the field of psychology, really wanted nothing to do with it and knocked around for a number of years, working in liquor stores and warehouses, worked some security guard gigs, uh, worked parks enforcement for a period of time, just really kind of knocked around, not really knowing what I wanted to do. And then got on the postal police in 96 and then came on the job in 97 and then kind of started saying to myself, you know, maybe I just wasn't in the right program. Maybe I need to look around a little more. And I went back to John Jay for my master's in 99 and got my master's in forensic psychology. And that's what set me on my course. Um, forensic psychology is really theoretical. It doesn't revolve around any particular theory. You know, it's not behaviorally driven or cognitive driven. It's just forensic work. And that is really where I found my path. And ultimately, in the, in the beginning, what I saw myself doing was criminal psychology pure criminal psychology. And that's where I did my externships and my internships. I, I loved it. I still do to this day. Um, doing dangerousness assessments and, and retention hearings for people that are committed for not guilty by reason of insanity. I did my, I did two, I did an externship up in Mid-Hudson Forensic Psychiatric up in Orange County. And I did an externship. Uh, I did two externships in Mid-Hudson, one at the master's level, one at the doctoral level. And I did my doctoral internship at Kirby Forensic um, up, over, up by the Tribord Bridge. Um, and I loved it. I, I was absolutely enamored by the work. Um, unfortunately, you can't be a psychologist in a state facility without getting the waiver if you're also going to collect your pension. And so I really couldn't do much working in a, in, in a forensic psychiatric setting because I wouldn't be able to collect my pension unless I got the waiver and they're just not giving the waivers out anymore. And so it was sort of like, well, then what else? Can, where else can I go? Um, and then when I did my, uh, my time working in psych services uh, at the NYPD and doing some peer work there um, and seeing the work that needs to be done for cops, um, that sort of set me on this track. I'm sorry you aren't still around because this may has given a waiver out to former chief of department and a couple of deputy commissioners. Now you'd be making $400,000 like the rest of them. Well, listen, I think as a select group of people who get the waiver these days. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you get the inside of politics, I guess. If anyone has an inside line to get me the waiver, please. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of big money being paid out. You know, NYPD brass is packed with it. Doc, I, I want to get really into the PTSD. And I know you did 
military deployment debriefings. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? And I'm assuming this is for members of the department who were activated and coming back. Uh, are you able to speak about some of that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so uh, mechanically, the way that it works is we have many members, we have many MOS that are still in reserves and they get deployed for a period of time, sometimes for, for years on end, they'll be activated. Um, I mean, I've, I've had MOS come back after two years of activation uh, and the department's almost foreign to them at this point, you know. Um, and so what, what we're really looking for, so the purpose of, of a military deployment return debriefing is, is really just to kind of do, it's, it's less of a checkup from the neck up and it's more of a psychoeducational session, right? Um, because it, it's not a diagnostic interview, right? I'm not sitting down with the MOS and trying to diagnose them, right? I'm sitting down with the MOS for, for this kind of a debriefing and just doing a psychoeducational check-in. So I'm going to ask them about their deployment to whatever degree they can speak about it. Sometimes people are on missions that they can't necessarily speak about. They're sensitive. Um, I ask them very generally, just tell me about their deployment. Where did you go? What was your mission? What's your specialty? Did you see any combat? Right. If you saw combat, it's a very different sort of interview. It's a very different sort of debriefing than if you saw no combat. You you, you were on a forwarding operating base, but you never left the base, right? Maybe you were there when some mortar fire came in, but nobody in your unit died. You didn't suffer any injuries, right? That's kind of what you're looking for. You want to kind of get a sense of what were your experiences on deployment. But beyond that, you also really want to look into what's going on in your personal life, right? Are you married? Were you away and your family was left behind while you were on deployment? And now there's stressors at home as well going on. How was the transition to you back to the job? Because although the job is a paramilitary organization, it's not a military organization, right? There's, there's very subtle differences there, but very important differences there between the two. How are you transitioning back to quote unquote civilian life, right? Civilian life in a, in a military life, back to being an MOS. Um, what was your rank in the military and what's your rank in the department? So perhaps you're a sergeant or, or, or a ranking officer in the military and you're a PO here. How are you making that transition? How is that for you? Are you are you struggling with that? Are you transitioning well with that? Um, and then finally, just doing a piece about what are the available services that the department has, right? If you were in need of help, where could you go, right? These are your available services. Let me educate you about that. And then sort of an overview about signs and symptoms, right? So let me tell you about what kind of things we see in people struggling with depression. What kind of signs you might want to know anxiety, post-traumatic stress, psychoeducation about signs and symptoms of varying disorders. It's really not meant to be a diagnostic interview, and it's really not meant to be a threatening interview, right? It's not meant to be an adversarial thing, right? It's about how was your deployment? How are you doing? How are you transitioning? These are what services we have to offer you. If you need anything, you can always reach out to us. That's really the way it should be done. Tom, it seems like... um... You know, there's a lot of PTSD in the world these days, and I'm not using the word lightly, but we have faraway wars, one of which is about to end. We have, you know, the anarchy in the streets in the United States. We have a a global pandemic. It seems like the whole world is on edge. Um, Is, are we coming to a breaking point? Are we coming out of this now? I know the clients that I have, the non-law enforcement people, they're stressed to the max. And they're, they're totally frazzled. They want medication. 
you know, which I obviously can't uh, give to them, but everybody's looking for some type of relief. Do you find that to be uh, be the case? I, I certainly find it to be the case in, in the cops that I see, or the law enforcement. I don't only see cops, I see agents, and I see other law enforcement members as well. But I certainly see it in the law enforcement that I see here in my office and in the families of law enforcement that I see here in my office. Um, the degree of stress that's being put on our law enforcement officers and on, the, and on their families, um, you know, policing during a global pandemic, coming home, going out every day out into a pandemic and not certain if today's the day that you bring it home to your family. You know, the rituals that we see people engaging in, uh, the stress that it put on family units from the family all being caged in together, right? 24 seven, but we see that in everybody, right? But it's different when you have one member of the family who's, because they're essential, are going out into the world every day and potentially bringing it back in and the things that they were seeing while they were out there policing during the pandemic. And then right on top of the pandemic, almost immediately, you had all the social unrest that came in after the Floyd killing, right? Uh, and so how do you police during a global pandemic as well as during social unrest, especially with so many of the mixed messages that were being given from the organizations and the agencies and from the government? Um, how do you make sense of any of this? And so I'm seeing a lot of the stress of that playing out here in my office. Um, but the truth is, just after we saw in 9-11, you know, the true... Um, emotional toll of 9-11 was not seen for maybe 12 to 18 months after 9-11. We didn't see it in the immediate aftermath. We saw it 12 to 18 months later and then and, you know, residually after that. I don't believe we're truly going to see the, the, the emotional toll of policing during the pandemic and policing during the Abolish the Fund movement for at least 12 to 18 months after, right? I think we'll start seeing the real emotional toll over the next six months to a year. Doc, there's a, when we talk about PTSD, we always think about the military and, you know, they have 22 people a day committing suicide. I believe that every cop suffers from PTSD. And I've done a lot of research, nowhere in the area of you two experts, but, um, you know, my understanding of this is that um, the amygdala part of the brain controls emotion good and bad. And the trauma builds up into the back of the brain over a period of time. And it, when that happens, it could actually be detected on a scan, like a cluster. I think it was blue or purple that I saw. And trauma being, I ask this question many times in BMOC when I talk about this, that every one of us goes to the mall. And, and I, I ask everyone, you remember your day at the mall? And they'll say, yeah. You remember what you saw? And, I'll, and they all say yes. And then I'll ask them, do you remember what took place the next day? And they all say no. And so, you know, to me, that's like you remembered something that you viewed as traumatic. You remembered fatal car accidents. You remembered, you know, maybe sitting next to your mom who's dying of cancer. Trauma, trauma, trauma coming in. And we all remember if we all work together, we'll tell the funny stories about what happened. So we remember the good stuff, but we don't remember the basic stuff. So my view, and I may be totally wrong, that every cop suffers with PTSD to some degree. If you're able to say, well, you've experienced this in, um, in cop, you believe that to be true. Um, and if so, what can be done about it? So I think if we if we think about PTSD, if we think about trauma and, and a traumatic reaction as sort of existing along a continuum, right? More see it as on a spectrum rather than, than as, a, as a discrete disorder per se. Um, then I would agree with the sentiment that probably 
almost all cops have experienced some critical incident or been exposed to some critical incident stress in the course of their work and are probably still experiencing some residual emotional issues in regard. The, uh, the FOP, the national FOP did a survey, they collaborated with NBC back in 2018 and did, did a survey of something like 5,000 cops from across the country um active and, and and retired this anonymous survey and the results of that survey was something like 70 some odd percent of respondents to the survey said that at some point in their career they experienced a significant critical incident and still believe themselves to be experiencing residual emotional uh issues specific to that critical incident right i think that data kind of really does map on to what you're asking what you're saying that, that we take away trauma from this job um, in ways that maybe we're not very much aware of, in ways that maybe we need to rethink what trauma is and how it happens to us and how we experience it. I do um, I do EMDR therapy, so I'm a, a it's uh, eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy. It's a, it's a trauma focused therapy, um, and and in EMDR work we talk about sort of uppercase T trauma and lowercase T trauma. Right. So with the big trauma, you know, shooting, sexual assault, witnessing horrific crimes, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But then that those kind of lowercase T traumas are often overlooked, you know, being exposed to the worst that humanity has to offer. Right. You know, sitting long hours on a DOA that perhaps was a, a gruesome sight. Um, those things that we kind of think are just the cost of doing business and police work, um, sometimes we trivialize those things and we don't really pay enough respect to the impact that those experiences, those kind of lower key traumas uh, can really have on us over time. I, I attended a Navy SEAL um, dinner in New York and every table has one or two SEALs that sit with them. And I, I asked them the question about PTSD and you know, how do they deal with issues as far as the military goes? And they were a little bit different than some of the other branches of the military, but I thought they were a good question since they, they see a lot more than a lot of others do. And one of the things that they do differently than the department does, and um, the department, if, if I have a problem, uh, domestic, uh, DWI, whatever it is, they take you, they send you into the court division, out of your command, they banish you for two years and they leave you there because of their fear of dealing with the idea of putting you back too soon, um, putting you in a place um, where you could have a gun versus no gun. But collectively, those places are filled with a lot of people who are in the same situation. So my theory is it's like we're putting everybody who's already miserable together rather than leaving them in the command where we all work together and you know, I may ride with you today and Bob tomorrow, but we know each other and you're kind of encouraging me and, you know, fostering a positive atmosphere, you know, a little bit about my family. You can talk to me, things like that. And tomorrow, Bob, but we take that cop and we bury them someplace else. We take them away from their friends, their familiarity with the people that they work with, and we bury them. Unlike the SEALs, they put them back into their teams and they're with their buddies. Now, nothing's foolproof, and they explain that to me, that nothing's foolproof. Sometimes guys still kill themselves, but their buddies help them get through it. And they talked about peer counseling. They, in a way, you're peer counseling. 
And, you know, you probably have experienced this as we all have. We get in a call with somebody that's going through divorce and they're really upset about it. Um, and we either joke with them, we talk to them, we try to introduce them to somebody else. We get them through it somehow. I never realized that what we were doing was pure counseling our partners or other cops that we work with. And this has been brought to the department for a while. They started doing some pure counseling, but the biggest problem that I see, no one trusts the department. They just don't trust the department because the department always takes the position that, you know, they got to protect themselves and banish you someplace else, never giving you benefit of the doubt. How do we fix that? I and could agree with that assessment. I, I could go on with horror stories um, of incidents of, of, of indifference um, that I saw play out in front of me. Uh, I'm part of uh, high-ranking executive decision makers in the department in regard to these things. Um, and so, yes, uh, I, I, I have always disagreed with the restriction process, right? with, with the way that the restricted duty process happens. And now, granted, I've been out of the game for a few years. I retired in December 2018, so I've been out of the game for a couple of years. So maybe change has been made that I'm not aware of. Right? Yeah. Um, but the restricted duty process kind of goes something like this. By some mechanism, whatever that mechanism might be, you get referred to psych services. Whether you're a supervisor, observe something directly that made them concerned that you're experiencing some kind of a mental health issue. Another MOS who's not a supervisor has reason you posted something on Facebook that gave somebody a reason to report that to the job and you got sent into psych or you got into a disciplinary issue. You know, you had a domestic issue or a DWI and you got referred over there from evaluation <laughs> through some, through some mechanism, you wind up over at site and your case gets assigned to one of the staff psychologists there. Right? And then you meet with the staff psychologist who's now being asked to make a determination about whether or not, they can give you back your gun and leave you on full duty and send you back to work, right? Now, in in those psychologists' defense, right, they're being asked to choose whether they would rather commit a false positive or a false negative. Would I rather miss risk when risk in fact exists and give this person back their gun when they shouldn't have their gun? Or should I are on the side of identifying risk where maybe no risk exists and taking your gun and putting you on restriction, right? Faced with those two choices, right? They're going to err on the side of committing a false positive every time. They're going to choose to make the mistake of identifying risk where in fact no risk exists every time. Because if they miss the risk and they give you back your gun and they send you back, potentially either that person is gonna kill themselves or another MOS is gonna get hurt or somebody out in the street is gonna get hurt. So there's an obligation of public safety involved in these decision-making processes. Um, and there's an obligation to ensure safe workers, right? For the other MOS, you don't wanna deliver MOS back to the field who shouldn't be there, right? So right. in their defense, they're, they're given a hard decision. It's a heavy decision to have to make, right? And so the chances are, if you get sent to psych, you're probably getting put on restriction. Right? And they're going to are on the side of, of putting on restriction rather than not. But anyway, that's a different conversation. What happens then is there's the restricted duty desk, right? It's not even a, a real desk. It's just a person, a, a civilian, MOS, a, 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 a member of the department who's, who's, who's not a cop, is going to go down a list 
of commands in the department that have requested additional staffing for administrative purposes, whatever it might be. And then that civilian is just going to, it's almost like a roto log. They're just going to go down the roto log and whichever command is next on the rotation, you're going there, right? So whether it's, you know, uh, Queens Criminal Court or, or whether it's some Viper unit somewhere down in, in some project, whatever it might be, you're just kind of by, by the whims of the restricted duty desk, you're getting sent on somewhere. You're going to wind up in this new command where you don't know anybody. You don't have any support in this new command. The CEO doesn't know you. The admin lieutenant doesn't know you. The other MOS don't know you. Nobody knows you. And you're walking in with no gun on your hip and no shield, right? I mean, now they let you keep your shield, but I'm not certain that that really does much to, to, um, to, to, to handle that uh, stigma. Now you walk in. If this new command needs you on midnight, but you were doing 4 to 12s because you have daycare issues at home and you need those 4 to 12s, for your daycare issues, this new command doesn't care. You're going on midnights if that's what they want, right? So there's not going to be any sympathies to what tours you need or what your RDOs are. So now you're going to lose all your overtime because, because except for certain rare situations, you really can't make overtime while you're on restricted duty. So if you were relying on, on hitting the cap every month, that's gone. Right? So now you've lost your social support. You've got stress at home because you lost your tours. You're losing your overtime. You have the stigma from walking around with, with, with no gun on and everyone knowing that. How does this help the situation exactly? You know, uh, and now to the department's credit, I am seeing some clients here in my in, in my practice, and I have seen clients in the past who, for very specific reasons, were sort of treated differently. Right? They were kind of given some degree of control over where they got transferred to or their tours. Right? And I think that's the way it should be. I, I'm a firm believer that we should be incentivizing MOS to voluntarily come forward and seek treatment. And if an MOS voluntarily comes forward and seeks treatment, they should be treated in a completely different procedural path than an MOS who got a DWI or got jammed up and got sent in. I'm not saying that that we should be punishing those people necessarily either. I'm just saying that if someone asks for help, we should be incentivizing that kind of behavior, right? I'm not saying reward it. I'm not saying give them a stipend or something. I'm just saying we should be incentivizing that so that the word gets out that if you voluntarily come forward and ask for help, you will be treated in a completely different procedure than if you wait until something goes wrong and we have to put you into treatment. Bob. I mean, you've been around a while. You work within the union. Um, what role should the union play in these scenarios? Um, and why is that not really connected with the department? I think the, um, the department is still very, um, they're still very traditional. They view people that, are, that purposely seek out assistance. They view that as a sign of uh, as a sign of weakness, and they view that those people uh, of being required, you know, required assistance rather than you know enforced assistance. You know, going getting arrested for a DWI or something like that. But I think what Dr. Coglin is saying is that you know the world is changing, and now people uh, going out and seeking assistance—they're the healthy ones, even if they have very very um, deep problems if they have issues, you know, personal issues, professional issues. But they're, if they're out there seeking assistance, they should be lauded for that, uh, not punished for that. 
And I think right now the situation is the opposite. It's upside down. Yeah. I, I mean, we're working on a program and, and offline, Doc, I, I like to talk to you. Bob's a little bit aware of it. But I really believe that the role of the unions should be primary to the department. Uh, I just find that the trust level of cops, you know, of all ranks, um, is there with the unions because we're always the place for them when there's an issue, whether they're involved in legal counsel, they close on house, they get disciplined. We're always that place. And I can't even begin to tell you how many people have actually called me personally looking for help. And, you know, I, I won't go through the department. I just won't. And, you know, I've developed that trust factor where sending them to someone else and they've gone on with, with their life and, and have been reductive and have done great things. Um, you know, I don't want to get into the details, but I've actually had a uniform member of the department walk into the SBA office on duty um, in tears. And thank God I ran into him years later and, you know, his life was able to get turned around. But we did everything we possibly could. They came there for help. And this is something like the department reaches out, but they bring us in and tell us what they're doing. They never ask what we can do. They never do that. You know, when they want money for a program or something is one thing. But I just feel that the cops don't trust the department. And how do we make that better? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, and I, I'm asked this question frequently. Um, I just presented to a chief's association out in uh, Kansas recently. And the same kind of question was proposed to me. And, and my answer is, is always the same. The solution has nothing to do with availability of services or access to services, right? Our cops, at least not in the NYPD, maybe in like rural agencies where there's not a lot of services available, whatever. I'm speaking specifically about the NYPD. Cops are well aware of what services are out there. They have their locker stickers with are you okay that list you know eau and papa and the crisis hotline and finest care or, or columbia presbyterian they, they they know what services are available to them and they know how to access those services right it's not a question of creating more services it's not a question of of, of making access to those services easier it's a question of policy this is a policy issue this is about a root and branch uprooting and redesigning of the mental health policies in the NYPD, of not approaching mental health policies, not if your mental health policies are mimicking your disciplinary policies, you're doing it wrong, right? They, they should not mimic each other, right? If you're approaching mental health policies and well-being policies from a punitive paradigm, and you see the only way to modify behavior is with punishment, you're doing it wrong. If you're looking at things through an autocratic lens, which is the way the NYPD does things, and to their defense, most paramilitary organizations, the highest ranking person in the room, right, wrong, stupid, or indifferent wins, you're doing it wrong, right? But that's the way the department approaches things. Punitive, autocratic, authoritarian, draconian, that's the way to do things, right? And, and that's wrong. And so you need a complete policy root and branch upripping and redesigning of how this is done. Right? Things should be done far more egalitarian. I could tell you, again, horror stories of 
being in a place where because I had to follow chain of command and I was held to chain of command, I had there was no mechanism for me to go above this middle management decision maker who just hated wellness policies, right? I had no mechanism to get above him. And if I did, I would have been punished for breaking chain of command. And so I had no recourse but to sit there and let this anti-cop middle management decision maker with no psychological knowledge tell me how to do my job as a psychologist, right? And, and that's not the way it should be. You should not bring on professionals and tell them what to do. You should bring on professionals and do what they tell you. Right, right. And that's right. just not the way that the department sees things. Ego is a big factor in these things. Is I'm in charge, I have the rank, and they forget that you have years of experience and they should be open to that. Um, there was a certain, uh, a certain middle manager who, when I would sit in a meeting with him and other people in his entourage, when he wanted, when he was happy with something I might say, he would refer to me as doctor. Well, as the doctor has said, right? When he wanted to underscore, when, when, when he wanted to underwrite me or undermine me, right? He would say, listen, detective. So he wanted to let me know. He's in charge. When I agree with you, you're a doctor. When I'm not happy with what you're saying, you're a detective, I'm a, I outrank you. Uh, and that's the way it is. And he would do it consistently. See, that's the type of behavior that contributes to the demise of a trusted program. Because they never let it flourish, and those are the people that maintain the the view of the cops to not trust the department. It, it, it's sad, but um, I just feel it. And you bring up an interesting point. There's lots of venues for cops to go to. They know where to go. They just don't trust the process. We're treating everything as discipline, and it's not the case. I've seen a lot of careers wrecked. Unless they were a white shirt, then it was done differently. But uh, a lot of careers get wrecked because of, um, I'm going to say, leaders who are cowardice in making proper decisions or, or egos that get in the way. Um, I want to dig in a little bit to what's transpired with um, policing and Derek Chauvin, what took place in the Floyd incident. Um, but I'm going to tee it up with Bob as to what you think may have been in his mind. And, and I'm going to be devil's advocate as we talk about Chauvin, because there's a lot of things that did happen that no one talked about um, that I became aware of, and maybe you have been aware of. But, you know, the world watched this video, and I think it was eight or nine minutes, I forget the exact time, where Chauvin is on um, Floyd's shoulder, back, people believe it was the neck. Um, but you know, let's concede to his body just for argument's sake. Bob, why do you think this occurred where he stayed calm and on top of this guy? I mean, based on, you know, what do you think was in his mind when this was happening? Uh, I have no idea what was in his mind. And I, I understand the legal process and how it, uh, why he would be wary of offering an explanation, especially when there was such a, a lynch mob mentality. But, you know, was he zoning out? Was he frightened? Was he uh, sort of like a stand my ground type thing when people started challenging him? Um, I would have loved to hear some type of explanation from him. Uh, unfortunately, we never did. Maybe we will somewhere down the road.
But I think in a case that was as explosive as it was, even with the legal uh, the legal issues that he would have faced by making any type of comment which could have been twisted and turned, we should have got uh, some type of explanation from him. And maybe it would have helped him. But I can't fathom what was going through his mind at that time. Doc, your thoughts. Well, what when, you I, when, I, when I go back to my first love, when I go back to criminal psychology, right, and I think about um, the guilty mind, right, was there mens rea present? Was there guilty mind present when Chauvin was acting, doing whatever he was doing, right? And we look at the charges and, and we see that there, we look at the different subdivisions that he was charged with and where the mens rea exists, right? And what kind of criminal, what, what, was, was, what was his mental state at the time of the offense, right? What was his mental state at the time that Floyd died and why was he doing what he was doing? What was the motive? What was the intent, right? Do I know what was going through his mind? No, there's a chance that we might never, right? But when we look at his history and we look at the events of that day so the first unit on the scene were two um, rookie but not young cops right? um, the first two on the scene one was in his late 20s one was in his late 30s although they were new on the job but the one in his late 30s had been a prior probation officer and a prior co for a number of years right so they first come on the job and i know that there's talk about well, you know, were they just afraid to take action? Were they afraid to tell Chauvin to stop? I don't know. I mean, they were 27 and 38. They had years of experience behind them. So it's kind of hard to say that they were sort of these wet behind the ears rookies at 21 years old, just afraid to act, you know. Um, but what was Sha what was Chauvin thinking? He was he was the second unit on the scene, right? He was there with his partner, Tao, right? And uh, and he comes out and he takes over this scene. And and I, I think I think we all know that there is always the rule when the cuffs are on, it's over, right? I think that's that we kind of have always heard that idea. I also know that by the grace of God go I. Um, I did my own time out there and I know that things sometimes go wrong out there, right? If things go sideways and you have to kind of adapt to situations out there. Um, even good police work, and I, and I try to help my students understand this sometimes. I teach a class on the use of deadly force and I try to help my students understand this. Even good police work, reasonable use of force, justifiable use of force is ugly. It's never pretty, right? So even if something is reasonable and justified, it doesn't mean it's going to look good. It doesn't mean the optics aren't going to be bad, right? And so just because the optics are bad doesn't necessarily mean that something is either unreasonable or unjustified or excessive, right? And therein lies the gray area. I'm trying to sort out what a reasonable person have done this in this situation. And therein, I think, is where Chauvin fall short. I think that a reasonable person at some point would have said, he's in cuffs, let's get him up, get him back in the car, let's get out of here, right? Let's let's get him out of here, let's get back to the house, right? Why he didn't make that decision, you know, I don't know, right? I certainly wasn't there with him, I don't know what he was thinking. I just think that therein lies the flaw, that the, the decision to stay there with him prone down on his stomach, in, in, and I know he made a comment about he was concerned about excited delirium, Etc. Um, I just have to wonder if at some point he felt challenged by the crowd, challenged by people challenging his authority at the scene, and if somewhere ego didn't interfere with his decision making that day. I, you know, I agree with 
a lot of what you're saying. Um, and I'm curious to a lot of things that never really got said. And, um, you know, part of me thinks there's a part where he felt challenged and he just couldn't concede. But from what I saw and what I understood, and, and I did speak to people in Minnesota who were somewhere in the know, um, this was part of his training. And, you know, to put your knee on someone. And some of the video that we saw, Chauvin had asked to be taken out of the car. Chauvin had asked to be put on the ground. And I think there's a combination of things here that even if all of that was correct and he followed all of that, at what point do you realize to say that there's enough? And was it the part of my ego being challenged and said, I'm not going to concede? I don't know what the book actually said. You must wait for an ambulance to come. I don't know if that was the case. But even, you know, where there's there's a decision that has to be made, and, you know, I spoke to many attorneys about this, the big stickler was the eight to nine minutes. Um, ironically, that one particular video changed the nation. And a lot of it, was blamed across the country, which created a lot of negativity for the rest of the police. Which, you know, I, I always believe that cops are good people and that like anything else, we do have some bad apples, but we generally eat the bad apples first. If we know who they are, we, we, I don't want to work with you anymore. And that, that begins to trigger itself. The public doesn't believe that there's a lot that they don't believe. And I think we could do a better job of, of getting that message out. Um, if given the opportunity, I think I know the answer, where you could actually sit and interview Chauvin, uh, you would probably jump on that, I would guess. Correct? Both of you? Yes? No? I would absolutely be thrilled to interview Derek Chauvin. I think he would make a fascinating study. Uh, he had 19 years on the job. I know he had been involved in a couple of shootings and a lot of... He, he was, um, there were accusations made against him in a lot of incidents. As we know, that doesn't always mean they're bad cops. We right. know that from New York. But I would hope that someday uh, Derek Chauvin avails himself and, um, and, and you know, explains what was on his mind. Um, obviously, we know how it's changed his life. But um, would he have done something different? And exactly what was going through his mind during nine minutes, it changed his life and, and changed policing around the world. And I think at some point, we'll probably hear from him. He's going to be in jail a long time. And at some point, he's going to want to, you know, say what's on his mind and what was on and maybe get something off his chest. I agree with that. Doc? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. We're, we're, we're not in a climate where you're on the right side of history if you have sympathies for Derek Chauvin, right? That's that's not the climate we're in uh, as a society, right? But let's think about Chauvin in the totality of his life, right? Not the nine minutes we saw in that video. Let's think about Chauvin in the totality of his life and how he got to that moment, right? Let's look at his police career, right? And I think this is where agencies fail because as I think we all know, agencies don't want to absorb the liability of how they might have missed something along the way where they could have gotten in front right. of, of some negative outcome. Right? 
2008, I believe, he received the Medal of Valor, I believe, for a shooting, right? 2005, he was involved in some kind of an incident where somebody pointed a shotgun at him after a pursuit, and somebody died in that pursuit, right? In other words, this wasn't his first critical incident. No. You know, he had, a his, he, had a, he had a long history of policing in a career that potentially he experienced traumas over those, those years, or he experienced events over those years that shaped his thinking, shaped how he thought and felt and acted, right? But we look at those nine minutes and we say, bad Derek Chauvin, right? right? But nobody wants to look at the 19 years of his career leading up to that or the entirety of his life before he even came on the job and say, what can we understand about who this person was, not just in light of these nine minutes, but in light of his entire policing career, how traumatic events, he was in shootings, he had medals for it, he had you know numerous critical incidents he responded to, saw death out in the street. How did that affect him? And did his agency do anything for him responsive to those incidents all the time? Did they avail him of mental health services? Did they do any outreach to him and check in with him, you know, bring him into a support group? I don't know. What did his agency do for him? Right? Because when something goes bad, sideways, all of a sudden an agency wants to say, this isn't us, this is on this officer. Well, how about you own some of the, the, the outcome? It's interesting that you highlight that because um, Floyd had a criminal record and some violence in his criminal record. And that was not really allowed to come out. Even a lot of news media wouldn't even print it. But, you know, if, if Chauvin, you know, did anything, it all came out. Um, again, we go back to the eight or nine minutes that it's hard to explain. And I think that anybody that um, sees that could sit back and say, how do you explain that? I mean, I, I can't explain it. And I, I, I have not met one cop who can, yeah. but the imbalance of information leaves everyone to wonder. And I've heard some people say that he couldn't get a fair trial. I, I think you got to get past that because the other side of things is that we're a, a nation of laws. You know, when a trial goes our way, we're happy and we say that's the justice system. When it doesn't go our way, it's not a fair trial. But I, I can't judge that. I don't think any of us should be able to judge that. We weren't there. We don't know what took place. Um, but I, I definitely think that this incident opens the door to policing in, in its whole. But it should be looked at in, in two ways. What are we doing wrong in law enforcement, um, mental health wise? Because you just raised a lot of great points that, you know, this individual had a pretty good background that got no credit for. And how do we improve that moving forward with the communities? Because this one particular incident, it destroyed the city of New York, destroyed cities across the country. Um, people are dying across the country because every political official feels they need to make significant changes and the change in laws that are just not practical. Um, and I think that we're seeing um, an impact now to younger cops and people wanting to be cops. And I'm curious, Doc, before we run out of time, what's your view of that? How do you see all of these events impacting the young cops today or people wanting to be cops? Yeah, I, I, I see it impacting our, not only just our young cops, um, but even cops with time on, cops with not enough time to leave, you know, but not enough time on that they, they have so much time in they can't leave and not enough time to go if they wanted to, you know. Um, I see it kind of impacting cops across the board. I've had, you know, clients here in my office who don't have their time for full service retirement and just left 
just walked off the job, decided that I'll go back and be in my dad's lumber business or something. Yeah. Um, I've had cops who have their time on, but love this job, love what they do for a living, love coming to work every day and just walked in and threw their papers in and just said, I'm not, I, I'm not doing this anymore, you know? And they're miserable. They're miserable transitioning into retired life. This is not what they want, you know? So it's not just young cops, although the impact that I'm seeing on the young cops uh, is, is, is a sense of everyone takes the job for a different reason, right? But ultimately we take the job to some degree or another because we wanna be one of the good guys, right? We wanna be one of the good guys, right? We know that there's good guys and bad guys. We want to be one of the good guys. But now you go out and you're vilified. And you're now the bad guy somehow in, in the public's eyes. And you're being treated as such. You're being vilified in the streets. You're being spit on by protesters. You're being called every name in the books. I, I have clients across all diversity, right? all races and ethnicities and all sexual and gender identities in my office. And, and, and some of those cops are struggling. My African-American cops are struggling feeling black and blue, right? And trying to, to reconcile that. Like which aspect of my identity am I navigating here? And which one is more important to me? And why am I being vilified for this and being called a traitor for that? Or cops who, is, who are of a certain gender or sexual identity and are sort of being told in their social circles that they are supposed to feel certain ways about things. And if they don't, they're a traitor to their gender or sexual identity because they have different political affiliations, whatever they may be. There's a tremendous amount of struggle going on out there. And the vilification that's being done to our young cops is causing a tremendous identity crisis. Uh, cops, cops are operating under a threat to identity and they're responding to those threats to identity in a variety of ways. I'm seeing it in performance decrement, meaning cops going dead. Like I'll show up and sign in and take my meal and sign out. That's about the most you're getting out of me. Right. I'm not doing anything else. Right. And if the radio comes up, I'll answer a radio run when I get there, but don't expect my response time to be too fast. Right. And, and don't expect me not to hold my job back before giving a disposition. You know, I'll, I'll get it done, relax, you know, but I'm not gonna kill myself to do it. A lot of that is- the exit. Kids walking off the job, just walking off the job. A lot of that's happening. Exactly what you're saying is happening. And, you know, I've, I've spoken to a variety of ranks, um, you know, commanding officers are telling their cops to, you know, slow down and, and pay attention to not getting yourself indicted. And most of it is because they're not getting the political backing. I've spoken to several African-American cops that are struggling and they're torn because in their own communities and amongst families, they're being looked at as traitors. And yet th- these are cops that any one of us would work with and die for, and they would do the same for us. I mean, they, they have not crossed the bridge of, of us against them. We're all on the same page on, on topics. We all understand what's happening, but it's gotten to the point where it's it's really you know deteriorating the department, and I, I think it's being left unaddressed. Um, you know, we're going to run out of time, and, and two things is um, I'm going to give Bob the last question, but I definitely would like to bring you back again. I think a lot of the viewers are going to find this fascinating. And, and hopefully you can make time to talk with us again. Uh, I really appreciate it. Bob, you got last question. Yeah, uh, Dr. Conga, just one quick question about young cops coming on the job nowadays. Um, the future, the immediate future, are we in trouble? Or is it gonna, are we going to get through this? Are the young people going to be able to adapt and, and get some reward and um, a reward from this career 
or are we going to lose a generation of good, young, idealistic cops? So, you know, I, I, one of the things I try to do when I'm working with, with my, my young cops who are struggling, I try to give them a frame, right? I try to put this in a frame, put it, put it, in, put it in perspective. Like, let's look, let's pull up to a 33,000 foot view, not a five foot view. Let's look at this in a good frame. I try to give them hope, right? I try to make them understand, listen, have we been through horrific times in policing? Yes, we have, right? Um, do we judge every cop by Michael Dowd? Do we judge every cop by Frank Lavodi? Do we judge every cop by Justin Volpe? No, we don't. But we've been through those times and we've done that and we've pulled out of that and gotten back. And I believe, I truly believe, I'm not offering false hopes, I truly believe the pendulum will swing. I truly believe that we're gonna pull out of this. I think the recovery time might be a little slow on this one, right? Mm-hmm. I think we might be in for a little bit of a, 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 a long march on this one, but I do believe the pendulum is gonna swing. I do believe that we're gonna pull out of this. Um, and, and I believe that ultimately we're gonna have the chance to go out there and do police work, you know? It, it, and it's a shame because no matter how you measure good policing, whether good policing is measured by the amount of enforcement actions you're taking in the street or by reducing negative outcomes like excessive force incidents or increasing the sense of partnership with the community, whatever. However you gauge good policing, every one of those metrics is going to be negatively impacted by the stress that our cops are under out there right now, the burnout that we're seeing. But I do truly believe when I offer hope to my young cops out there that are saying this is not the job that I thought I was coming on to, the pendulum will swing. There will be a correction. It's just a matter of how long that takes on this one. Keep offering that hope. We need it. I agree, and I also think it's going to take a long time, but I, I do agree. Um, you know, good ass to win over evil. That being said, Bob, I want to thank you, Doc. I, again, thank you. I would love to bring you back. Um, thank everyone for watching to the point. We'll see you next time. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. Thanks, Doctor.